episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom, and I'm joined today by other patients, including Gary Peterson, Cynthia Jamlowski, and Pat Killingsworth as co-hosts. We would like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Takeda Oncology. They have been extremely supportive in the work we've been doing, and we're very grateful for their efforts and their support. Now, this show is the very first in a very important series for our new research initiative called the Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative. So because this is so new, we'd like to give you a little history before we get started. We feel that progress in myeloma is clearly being made, but that new and additional approaches are needed because we don't have a cure yet. We decided to jump in to fill in the gaps to find and fund excellent discoveries to ultimately find a cure for myeloma. We believe very strongly that patients need to have a seat at the table to help support new discoveries. So for the very first time, patients are joining together with myeloma specialists to help find new ideas through crowdsourcing that could have the greatest impact for patients. So what does this mean and how does it work? Um, First, we created a patient advisory board that includes Pat, Gary, Cynthia, Liz and myself. Uh, we also then invited an impressive group to participate as our scientific research advisory board. Uh, that includes Dr. Rafael Fonseca of the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Dr. Irene Gabriel of Dina Farber, Dr. Nupar Rajay at Mass General, Dr. Guido Trico at the University of Iowa, Dr. and Dr. Robert Erlowski at MD Anderson. Um, joining with us also are another patient, Liz Smith, and Dr. Mike Thompson of Medical College of Wisconsin. And as a group, we determined that the biggest need in myeloma today is high risk because current therapies don't help these patients for very long. And this patient group is truly desperate for new treatments. We also chose high risk because uh, at the end stages, when you're relapsed and refractory to things, we are all high risk at that time um, because today there's no cure. So in February, we opened it up to receive letters of intent or summaries of investigators' proposals and we received an amazing 36 proposals that were specific for high-risk patients, which is completely remarkable. Now, in March, this last month, the Scientific Advisory Board scored the proposals, and based on that scoring, they determined a top 10 out of that group of 36. Now, this upcoming uh, Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative, or MCRI series, uh, we will be interviewing the top 10 to learn more about their research And we would very much like you to be involved and aware of the projects so you can help select the research that will lead to a cure. And once we have the full transcript back from the show, which is about four days from now, we encourage you to educate yourselves about it, like it on Facebook, and share it with your myeloma friends. After we hear from the 10 investigators, both the scientific and patient boards will come together to select a limited number of proposals that we will then create campaigns for. And we've had many comments about how excellent the research was, even with all 36 proposals. So this is not an easy task to narrow the field because all the research is just excellent. But again, we need your help. Now, we would like to kick off this series by welcoming um, Dr. Craig Hoffmeister of Ohio State University. We are just very privileged to have you with us today. So welcome, Dr. Hoffmeister. Oh, thank you so much, Jenny. Well, sorry I had to give the intro, but I think patients need to um, n- know where we're headed. So let me give a little introduction for you. 
Um, Dr. Craig Hoffmeister is Associate Professor of Medicine at, at Ohio State University and um, is lead of a section of plasma cell, okay, I can't say that word, <laughs> dyscriasis? No, I said that wrong. It's, it was meant to be uh, plasma cell dyscrasia, and what it dyscrasia. means is just a fancy word to say when a plasma cell goes wrong, okay. and it really fulfills everything, smoldering myeloma, MGUS, AL amyloidosis, anything when plasma cells play poorly with others. Okay, perfect. In addition to his research interests, he's an attending physician in the Lymphoma, Myeloma, and Bone Marrow Transplant Service. He's an ad hoc reviewer of publications including Blood, Journal of Clinical Oncology, Clinical Cancer Research, and the British Journal of Hematology, in addition to others. He's the recipient of the Imagine More Award, um, the Business First 40 Under 40 Award in Ohio and the Ohio State University College of Medicine. So we would like to um, open it up for you to... Let me add a few more people here. Um, welcome, Gary, and welcome, Cynthia. Well, thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm here. Okay, great. Um, Dr. Hobmeister, maybe you'd like to start. We we did a show, but it was quite a while ago, on CAR T-cells and how they work. Maybe you want to give us an introduction of your research first and just kind of describe what it is and, and how, how it works and why you began researching this in the first place. Well, CAR T-cells are uh, a little bit complicated uh, when you think about it. Um, it's really uh, fantastic work from the NIH with Steve Rosenberg and University of Pennsylvania with Carl June just fantastic minds that have been working on chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, so-called CAR-Ts. And they've been doing this for years, literally, essentially decades. And what got us involved, uh, like many people, is when this area of research essentially got hot, when their iterative improvements in the chimeric antigen receptor or CAR technology improved to a point that they published and it was all over the New York Times and a lot of lay literature about some of their great success in blood cancers. The idea behind CARs, and that's chimeric antigen receptors, um, is relatively simple. The goal is to take a white cell out of the patient's body, and this really forms the, the primary component of the patient's immune system that floats in their blood and their bone marrow. These cells really go between both. But these cells are essentially taken out of the patient's blood and put into a bag and preserved, and then they are made, they're forced to express a protein or a receptor on their cell surface. What that means is you're taking a bunch of normal white cells from a patient that are preserved in a bag, you grow them up in culture, and then you force them to put something on their outer surface of the cell. Now, you can do that by any number of ways. And, you know, what you're trying to do is change the genetic instructions, changing the DNA of these white cells 
so that their normal machinery makes a protein which floats up to the cell surface. And this protein really is a targeting mechanism. And you can make it target whatever you want, but you need to have a specific target for to make these cells, these T cells, attack this any cell that has this target on its surface. Essentially, you're taking these the patient's white cells uh, or any white cells and targeting a protein on the cell surface for a cancer cell. Now, there are lots of targets in my, my uh, disease, which is multiple myeloma that I focus on, but this technology is being used in a variety of blood cancers, solid tumors, um, glioblastoma, sarcoma were the two things that I saw in the last week uh, come across my Twitter account. And so this is really a, a hot area of research for most uh, human cancers. And for, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead. So our our interest is trying to find specific antigens, specific proteins on the cell surface of myeloma cells that we can use to target, uh, genetically modify, essentially, a patient's white cells to go after these targets. Now, the one we have uh, in... Uh, farthest along in development is called CS1. And CS1 is a target that's been around for quite a bit in myeloma. It's expressed on most plasma cells, and it's actually the target for a monoclonal antibody called ilituzumab, which is in phase three testing right now. Now, I don't know the results of those phase three tests, but they might lead to approval of ilituzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody targeting CS1. What our area of research is, is to make a CS1 CAR T cell. So uh, take a T cell and target it towards any cell that expresses CS1, which is primarily plasma cells. And the overall goal is to take these white cells from a patient, make them target CS1 through genetic modification, and then infuse those CS1 CAR T cells back into the patient. Now, what's really cool about this is that you're infusing a tiny number of cells, literally a tiny number of cells. But every time these T cells encounter a myeloma cell that expresses CS1, it divides. And so these CAR T cells essentially grow in concentration in the patient's body. In essence, they start out as a minimally effective therapy that would only work on a tiny number of myeloma cells. But within the patient, they expand. And they expand hundreds and thousands and millionfold. So the small number of genetically modified cells that are infused into a patient expand dramatically to essentially meet the demand of all the myeloma cells in the patient. And every time they see a myeloma cell that expresses the target, the target protein, it kills that myeloma cell. And that's the essence of the CAR T-cell therapy. Okay, so let me ask this question. So you're basically taking the white cells out, you're marking them with the CS1 protein, and then you're using elotuzumab to attack that protein because it's now marked? 
or it's its own it's its own therapy. Does that make sense? Elituzumab is its, is its own therapy and separate from this, but elituzumab essentially provided a roadmap because elituzumab targets CS1 on myeloma cells. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we created essentially the front end, the targeting mechanism for elituzumab is what we force a patient's white cells to put on their cell surface and target myeloma cells. So it's no longer a monoclonal antibody. All it is is the targeting mechanism from elituzumab that we put onto a T cell. And the T cell actually has a lot more killing effectiveness than a standard antibody. Because the antibody basically just lops onto the surface of a myeloma cell and sits there and hopes that the patient's immune system will uh, attack and engulf the antibody plus the myeloma cell. But with CAR T cells, you don't have to worry about that. They are have the targeting system on their cell surface. Once they hit their target, they're going to both expand and kill the target. So, so elituzumab and the CAR mm-hmm. T cells are separate. Hi, Doc. This is Cindy. Can you hear hey. me, guys? Yep. I, yep. I have a question. Um, is this CAR T cell... Um, therapy done alone or in combination with some other type of treatment? That's a great question. So there are, to my knowledge, there are at least two uh, CAR-T trials that are accruing patients right now. One is at University of Pennsylvania, and this is using their standard uh, CD19 target, and they've used that with much success in CLL and ALL, and its use in myeloma is being evaluated there. There is another CAR-T trial that is ongoing at the NCI, National Cancer Institute, and that's targeting myeloma cells that have a protein called BCMA on their cell surface, so a different target, and it's a different trial. Both of those trials just use the patient's own cells genetically modified, and then infused back into the patient. There's no immune stimulator. There's no other treatment. It's just a cellular therapy, which makes sense because really the field is just beginning to get started in the CAR T cells. And so especially when you're looking at a new target and a new clinical trial, it's appropriate to start out in for safety concerns with just the genetically modified cells. But clearly, a lot of the work in the background and in the forefront in the laboratory is trying to combine these CAR T cells with other therapies that might improve either the expansion of these T cells in the patient or their killing activity against the cancer cells. Okay. Um, I, I thought the one at UPenn was done in conjunction with an autotransplant. I'm not quite sure, though. You're absolutely but, um, right. It is an autologous transplant that's done first, so they get high-dose IV malfilan, and then they move on to uh, get the, the CAR-T infusion. What I, what I guess I, I was focused on whether the CAR-T, but it's not thought that the malfilan was hanging out still. The melphalan, okay. in essence, for the UPenn trial is just trying to make sure that the CAR-T cells get in the patient and expand and aren't essentially killed off 
by the patient's immune system. And that's actually common for most CAR-T trials is that they, they call it lymphodepleting chemotherapy or depleting or decreasing the number of lymphocytes that are in the patient to decrease the chance that these cells will just get killed off by the patient's immune system. Yes, that is a component of many CAR-T trials up to this point. And usually it's not a heck of a lot of chemotherapy that they give. And most of these patients, especially relapsed and refractory myeloma patients, they, they essentially yawn at high dose IV melphalan. It's it's not gonna be an effect it's not gonna be a very effective therapy. Now in those patients at University of Pennsylvania, I think it is still pretty effective therapy. Um but okay. the, so will, the will chemotherapy proceeding in conjunction with uh, a, a transplant or would it be in isolation? It our proposal is uh is, is as it currently stands is associated is the CAR T cells are preceded by a small, by a relatively small dose of cyclophosphamide, uh, because in general we're trying to find a way. I think that the UPenn group is targeting patients who are earlier on in their disease course, and that in many ways makes sense because the target that they chose, CD19, is not expressed at a high density on most myeloma cells. So at the beginning, they weren't kind of sure how well this would work. And I think there's still a lot of questions about it because only a relatively small number of patients have received it so far. Correct. Okay, thanks so much. So let me just uh, make sure I understand it. So you chose CS1 because it's a very common protein that's found on myeloma cells and that we have an existing therapy that targets that certain protein, which is elotuzumab, right? And what you're saying is you're doing the targeting and then you're letting elotuzumab take over, but it's actually being boosted. And so, for example, elotuzumab, they say, doesn't show single agent activity. So they're combining it with other things and it's showing to be really responsive. But what you're saying is that you can boost the power of elotuzumab because you have the cell's specifically targeted, and then it kind of replicates and takes over. Is that accurate, or is am I it, not understanding it, it right? I think I think you've got it, and you describe it well. The key thing to know is elotuzumab simply provided us the roadmap to make uh-huh. the targeting system. Elotuzumab has nothing to do with our proposed clinical trial, except uh-huh. for the fact that we used it to make the CAR-T cells, and we because elotuzumab already targets CS1. Elotuzumab is a separate therapy and not associated with our CAR T cells. Our CAR T cells are a cellular therapy alone. And mm-hmm. so all we've done is copy how elotuzumab targets CS1 and we've co- we genetically modify T cells so that they make so that they are able to target exactly the same CS1 that elotuzumab targets. I see. And so it's a, yeah. it's the same it's target, a, but two different therapies. Yes. Okay. The same target as elotuzumab, but two, but a different therapy. And it works because it works, and it, we believe it will work better because elotuzumab is just an antibody, an extra protein that gloms onto a myeloma cell, but it requires 
that in that microenvironment of the cancer cell, the patient's own immune system is able to clear out both the myeloma cell as well as that antibody. But in most cases, that microenvironment is not very active against the myeloma cell. The myeloma cells essentially create an environment around themselves that support their survival. So a simple monoclonal antibody against it oftentimes it has a steep road up to be effective. And for elituzumab, it doesn't seem to show a lot of single agent activity. But every time T cells, CAR T cells have been used and have expanded in patients, we've seen some dramatic responses in other cancers. And there, there's still uh, some data it, for a few myeloma patients at University of Pennsylvania, and to my knowledge, I haven't seen any data uh, about the CAR-T trial at the NCI yet. And the other groups are going after CD19 and BCMA, like you mentioned, but you're going after mm -hmm. CS1, and mm -hmm. you chose that because? We chose CS1, in essence, because we thought, one, it was going to be expressed on a large number of myeloma cells, and we felt that CS1 was expressed essentially in a plasma cell's teenage years and again, you know, kind of in the uh, older adulthood of a plasma cell. So we're hoping that it will be effective for both, if you believe in, in a myeloma stem cell, we, we hope that it'll be effective in both the worker bees and the stem cell, uh, in the myeloma stem cells as well as the myeloma worker bees. And we had a lot of safety data with the elituzumab already there. So we're hoping that being able to uh, essentially target plasma cells early on in their life, as well as having that safety data together, made it an excellent target for us. Well, that's, it's a great approach to piggyback on research that's already been done and just, like, hit the gas. <laughs> That's word. certainly what we're hoping what we're hoping for you know in essence we wanted to and what we dream of essentially is combining the approaches we would love to combine the BCMA have a bag of BCMA CAR T cells along with CD19 CAR T cells along with CS1 CAR T cells and infuse them all at the same time now from a regulatory standpoint and from an intellectual property standpoint, that's tremendously complicated. But just from a science and a patient standpoint, you you have essentially your you're tripling down on what could be very effective therapy. Yes, it could be very risky, but if you could have target three different things, you might be able to mop up every last myeloma cell, and that's awful appealing. Yeah, this is terrific. Doctor, I have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, I, was, I was wondering, uh, well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on a, an exceptionally well-written proposal. My head is you know, still sore from going through it. I mean, it is, uh, it is uh, very, very uh, excellent and uh, very complex. Well, thank you so much. And the one, one question was, do all myeloma cells express this CS1 target? And if they don't, the ones that escape, you know, are they going to raise their ugly heads? Mm-hmm. And that's the, that is the big 
concern for every CAR T-cell trial is, number one, will your CAR T-cells, when they get into the patient, will they expand? Because the expansion, increasing essentially the number of CAR, alive CAR T-cells in the patient, if they don't expand, you, they're not going to be able to kill all the patient's myeloma cells. So will they expand? And then will the cancer cell, will there be a target negative cancer cell that will lead to relapse? These are the big questions in myeloma. Now, we do know that there are, for the BCMA CAR-T trial, we do know that there are myeloma patients where their predominant clone, which means the majority of the myeloma cells that you see in a patient on a bone marrow biopsy, didn't express the BCMA target. So we knew that the CAR, referring them to that NIH trial was not going to be effective. So we know that BCMA is not going to be the end-all and be-all. And we would expect right, that there would be a group of patients where CS1 won't be expressed. But have we found a, a cluster of our patients that are CS1 negative? No. We're in the midst of looking just for those very things. In fact, we're interested in looking at the people who are BCMA negative to see if they're also CS1 negative. We're hopeful that because CS1 seems to be an important part of the plasma cells makeup from essentially even their teenage years all the way through adulthood, that we're hoping that a CS1 negative plasma cell is not going to be common. But really, I mean, with the uh, emperor of all maladies coming up here, it's certainly, uh, and leaning on the experience of cancer in the past, is certainly concerning to me that there's going to be myeloma cells that are going to be CS1 negative, and either they already exist in a small proportion of patients or we select them out through the CAR-T CAR therapy. So we're very concerned about that, um, and we're, we have a number of initiatives in the laboratory to try to get around that problem. Um, but again, we're just in the does that mouse model that you did, you, I assume what you did is you infected a bunch of mice, and then you had three different things, one of which included the CAR-T, and the CAR-T one looked like the mice were cancer-free. Is, is that what I saw? And if so, does that mean that for whatever the reason, there doesn't seem to be a lot that are escaping, at least in right. mice? Exactly. And, you know, literally, we've cured legions of mice of cancer. Uh, but, hey, you know, <laughs> you're remarkable. <laughs> Cancer-free mice. <laughs> but, you know, really we need to, you know, inbred immunodeficient mice uh, are not where we want to head. And even the immunocompetent mice that we test in the laboratory with a, you know, a variant of myeloma is, is not fully... Um, fully reflective of the complexity of human myeloma. Now, there are other animal models that are currently percolating for which we're not clear how well that they reflect. Cats and dogs both have um, some myeloma analogs, apparently, that are currently being worked up. There's newer mouse models that are always 
uh, always creeping up and being tested here and there. But it requires a tremendous amount of effort uh, with these uh, with to find a reflective uh, a species of animal that has myeloma that's reflective of the human experience. And thus far, we're still not all that close. But it did show that none of those mice had anything after you were done, which you don't usually find that, do you? That's In true. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. That's true, and, and that that's exactly what we found. And that's why you're excited, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah, one of the other, reasons we're so, very excited. It's exciting one of research. the things <laughs> yeah, that what you have in there, and this is my last question, I'll let everybody else uh, time in for a while. i got a few more after that, is that this uh, car uh, T-cell that you have also has a little bomb in it, doesn't it? the uh, lentil virus? Well, sure, sure. So I glossed over this at the beginning, and essentially the idea is that when you take T-cells from a patient, you need to force the T-cells to put that CS1 targeting mechanism on their cell surface. Now, you can force it any number of ways. There are retroviruses, there are lentiviruses, there is essentially something called electro electroporation uh, which it, it, which in many ways just shakes the cell um, but the um there's a lot of ways to get the genetic code into the cell and so the lentivirus for us we believe has the right mix of efficiency and safety to get the genetic program into the patient's T-cells so that those T-cells are forced to express the CS1 targeting system. That isn't really a bomb. All that is is a mechanism to put the targeting on the cell surface. The bomb is essentially the fact that you put that targeting system on the cell surface and any and most T cells probably when they are right next to and bound to their target they become agitated, and they are their own bomb. And when they're that close to and bound to another cell, it's very hard for them not to blow up. It's just the nature of T cells. And clearly myeloma cells have worked out ways to diffuse diffuse that bomb normally in patients' T cells. And what we don't know is, will they be successful at diffusing CAR T cells? Well, I'd like to ask a couple questions about safety because when we interviewed <clears throat> Dr. Rappaport, he said these are extremely pow- potent, very powerful, and then you have to be very careful with them. Can, so can mm-hmm. you explain um, any safety issues that you foresee about using CAR T-cells? There are lots of safety issues, and they're incredibly complicated. The first thing that you think about is, well, if I'm genetically modifying a T cell and they attack anything with CS1 or whatever target on its cell surface, there probably are going to be more cells other than myeloma cells that have that protein on their cell surface. And so we call them on-target, off-tumor effects. And that has been a big trouble with CAR T therapy 
you know, in the past in that minor expression of some targets on cells that you didn't expect them, like in the heart or the lungs. That could be a big problem if your CAR T cells not only are targeting your cancer, but, oh my gosh, they're leading to a horrible inflammation in your heart, causing it not to beat appropriately. That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of work to that we're doing now and others have done to try to verify that the expression of CS1 and other CAR T, other CAR -T targets uh, are limited to uh, cancer cells or cells or other plasma or other normal plasma cells that if the patient didn't have any plasma cells they could still get along. Mm -hmm. The other big problem that has occurred in patients, or at least one of the other big problems, is that when the CAR T cells are infused into the patient and then they expand every time they see a myeloma cell with the target, one T one CAR T cell becomes two. And every time those two, they, they become four. Well, that expansion can happen all at once. And when you have that many T cells expanding so quickly, that can be very unpleasant uh, for the patient. And it has a lot of com complicated names, but one of them is cytokine release syndrome. Basically, when all those T cells become agitated, they ooze out these inflammatory cytokines, these inflammatory chemicals in the patient's bloodstream, which can cause a patient to look for all the world like they're becoming septic. Mm. And many, and patient, not many patients, but some patients have had that and it's been life-threatening. Some mm. patients have passed away because of cytokine release syndrome. So with appropriate follow-up, with close uh, monitoring of patients, ideally, and a, and, a, and a knowledge now as we get on to the second and third kind of wave of CAR-T trials, there's acknowledgement of this clinical syndrome and medications given early on to decrease the cytokines and their inflammation in the patients, which we hope will decrease the risk of this. Mm-hmm. Another and, big... Oh, go ahead. No, I was thinking the last, the last big thing that's come up in some CAR-T trials is encephalopathy or essentially mental status changes. The exact, I don't exactly understand why this occurs, but it seems to occur in patients where it's almost they become confused. It's almost like they have a stroke, uh, and it's related to some aspect of these CAR-T trials. But really, the whole pathophysiology of how you get expansion of CAR-T trials and how this leads to confusion in patients is not clear to me. It doesn't seem to be uh, relevant for the kind of the brand of CAR-T trials that we are interested in studying, but it still is, is a concern that we're going to have as we're trying out a new CAR-T uh, target. Uh, and so in many ways, you're, you're starting as a first-in-human trial where all sorts of things could occur. Any mm -hmm. first-in-human trial certainly has safety concerns as uh, some of the top priorities. Right. Now, in monoclonal antibodies anyway, two targets have really been a standout. The CS1 that elotuzumab is targeting, now you're targeting with these CAR T cells, and also CD38. 
So can you talk to, um, would you, uh, I guess this would be a totally separate target and a whole whole separate area of research, right? But It absolutely is. There are CAR T cells that have been, uh, in essence, created and tested and perfected in the laboratory against CD38. Uh, and that work has been done uh, primarily in Europe, um, and uh, although other groups may have may have done it and haven't published it yet, um, that looks very interesting. The but it's there's a significant you know mountain to climb there because CD38 is expressed on the cell surface of many cells. Not mm. just many white cells, red cells, platelets, but other organs express CD38. And so the on-target but off-tumor effects of a CD38 CAR-T strategy could be a big, uh, a big hurdle to overcome. And one of the ways that researchers have postulated to get around this is to create essential what they call biodegradable CAR T cells, which I think is a great uh, way to think about it, uh, but essentially a way to create a group of uh, CAR T cells that don't last that long. Hmm. And they, they essentially infuse, expand a little bit, but essentially are wiped out and do not persist. And that allows them to do potentially some killing, but maybe without killing important CD38 off CD38 expressing off tumor cells that a patient may have. And this strategy is being considered in leukemia, myeloma, and a number of uh, a number of cancers, uh, and also different targets other than CD38. Um, but the CD38 uh, target is an excellent one, uh, but there's going to be some significant hurdles to get around its expression on off tumor cells in myeloma. Mm-hmm. And how long do the cells in this expansion process typically last? Does it just keep going until it finds it all and then it shuts down, or what's the process there? In many ways, the w- we would think the kinetics of how these cells expand. It seems that once they infuse somewhere in the first two weeks, they seem to have a huge, they can have a huge expansion. And then as the number of targets ideally decreases in the patient, their density in the patient's bloodstream slowly decreases. And in essence, what everyone's hoping for in many ways is to build an immunity towards these cancer cells so that should a patient relapse or these myeloma cells begin to proliferate, so too do the CAR T cells begin to expand and kill off the the returning cancer cells. I'm not sure if that's actually what happens. We do know that from the University of Pennsylvania experience that most of these CAR T cells expand within the first two weeks and that their persistence can last months and years. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, another I have question. a question. Oh, if go no ahead, one else does. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I know, um, I was just thinking back to the target of CS1 and not maybe being on all the myeloma cells. Relating that to the current trials that are going on with the CD19 cells and leukemia, 
do most leukemia patients have CD19 cells, or do you think they're, and is leukemia, like with myeloma, many people, there's so many different types of mutations that we're always afraid that we'll target something, but there will be one very aggressive mutation that will continue to go proliferate itself. Is that the same for leukemia, or is myeloma a different um, monster, I guess? No, no. I think those concerns are for, uh, you know, B, CD19 really is on the cell surface of many B cells, so it incorporates some leukemias and some lymphomas, so it includes, I'm sorry, some leukemias and some lymphomas, and I think that's a, that's a concern as well for uh, essentially CD19 negative cancer cells to come up uh, despite having CAR T cells targeting CD19 floating around in the body because they, they're floating around in the body looking for their target on a cancer cell, but the cancer cell has hidden that target. Um, so clearly we're concerned about that. And I think that that's a concern for any cancer. Okay. Thanks. I have a follow-up question. How is this um, appropriate for high-risk patients, and then does it work just as well for low-risk patients? Great question. So, so just uh, just the basics. So, low-risk and high-risk. Really, low-risk is described in essence as patients who become resistant to their current treatment slowly, and high-risk patients become resistant to whatever treatment they're on quickly. That is how, in essence, we've described low-risk and high-risk patients. So low-risk patients, no surprise, live longer, uh, and it requires less chemotherapy to keep their myeloma in control. High-risk patients generally require more drugs at a at any given time, and they become resistant to cocktails of drugs more quickly than low-risk patients. Now, all of that happens in many respects because we don't probably, all that happens in many respects because of the cellular machinery inside the cell. What makes uh, this strategy of CAR T cells appealing for high-risk myeloma is that it is very effective is in, in other diseases, and we haven't yet tested a lot in myeloma, but is very effective over a very short period of time. And it doesn't matter what treatment the patient has had in the past because all of that complicated, disrupted, mutated cellular machinery that has become stronger and more resistant over the patient's prior line of therapy, none of that matters if the target is expressed on the myeloma cell surface. And so in many respects, I think they meant some, some uh, investigators described it as uh, an agnostic treatment. I'm not exactly sure why that, why that uh, phrase has stuck, but in essence, it doesn't matter what the patient has gone through before, what they're resistant to, what's going on inside the cell. As long as they have that protein on the cell surface, the T cell should be able to kill it. And so I think that's why in many respects it's appealing to think of it for high-risk patients, and we hope that it will work just as well in low-risk patients. 
Mm-hmm. And then you don't have to worry about any genetic, specific genetic features like a deletion 17 or a 1416, or in, you're saying it would just work for everyone this in the same way. Right. Because many of those genetic features describe primarily how quickly a patient becomes resistant and certainly, you know, ha- has, uh, you know, downstream scientific background in terms of how it changes the microenvironment, how it responds to specific treatments, and a lot of details that go along with specific uh, mutations. But if you think of it, many myeloma patients start out with a diagnosis with two to six different clones. Mm -hmm. And so you're already starting out with some significant heterogeneity in a patient. And what we hope is that CS1 will be expressed on all the clones. And what we don't know is how often that will be the case. So you're looking at this as a very efficient way to attack myeloma. Right, and a way that ideally won't allow uh, a real selection pressure, uh, but instead, you know, uh, ideally uh, obliterate the clones that express the target and make the remaining clones unable to survive. This is what mm-hmm. I think we'd all dream of, and whether that's actually going to happen or not, is it, we're going to see over the next uh, months and years. Great. And can you give us an idea of the process that you've been going through to um, to discover this and the steps in the process, I guess, maybe give us a highlight or overview, and then where you are in the process and, and how far it takes to get from where you are to the clinic? So with an autologous CAR-T trial, you need to have some evidence, right, in a laboratory mm-hmm. that you can take some white cells you can force them to express the targeting system and that in your laboratory they kill the uh, best uh, model cells for your cancer and that uh, if you choose to do it in an animal system that it proves to be effective and safe in that animal system as well. That is the necessary research to make most academicians say, okay, this looks to be effective. Now, how do we go from the lab to the clinic? Well, first you talk to the FDA and say, does this look okay to you? And the FDA will look at your data, and then if they say, yeah, that looks pretty good, and that's usually called a pre-pre-IND. It's getting, start, starting an investigational drug application before you start getting an investigational drug application. It's kind of like pre-boarding. And when you do this, that step, then the next step is generally a pre-IND, sometimes in between having the NIH review your clinical protocol and data um, as necessary by a so-called recombinant DNA advisory committee. But in between that, you'll get to the pre-IND, which is the pre-investigational new drug application, even though they think of this cell therapy as a drug. Eventually, you get an investigational new drug application, an IND, which is your FDA's approval that you've passed the necessary safety uh, blocks and efficacy blocks that make everyone at the FDA think, hey, this could work. 
And once you do that, you take it back to your home institution, your university, and sell everyone there on it. So you have to sell your scientific review committees, your institutional biosafety committees, your IRBs, your uh, investigation review boards uh, to go over this application, this protocol of treating patients and everything you've done and see if everyone agrees to it. If they do, you have IRB approval, you have FDA approval, then you're able to go to a patient and say, okay, here's this, here's this idea we have, here's what we know, and you're one of the first in human to ever try this. What do you think? And, you know, in general, you're, you're talking to patients who have been there, they've done that. Their myeloma is marginally controlled, and they know that things are not going to go well for long. And everyone, the, the, it's important to have an appropriate process there of having patients understand the risks and benefits of trying something and being a first in human to use a potentially life-threatening and potentially life-saving therapy. The timeline for all this is, and the costs for all this are quite variable. It depends on the specifics of the, for, for cell therapy, the target, the research involved, the requirements of the FDA, and can you know, stretch, from, stretch from a couple years to a number of years. Uh, and, um, and where we are in the process is that we ideally are going to request the FDA um, uh, evaluate the pre-IND, which is a binding process, towards the end of 2015, and then we'd really like to have a clinical trial available for patients by mid-2016, and that is our hope at this point. Okay. And in terms of funding, I know sometimes, um, Gary, I know you had a question about funding. Well, actually, my question uh, wasn't really about funding. It was really about the cost of the treatment. Mm-hmm. And that what, what that was is that on the CAR, or the CD19 target, uh, for whatever the reason, uh, they were saying that uh, the costs for that treatment would be someplace in the half million dollars per treatment for CD9 T-cell treatment. And that... That's because uh, it's so um, significant, uh, uh, you know, the cost to duplicate these CD19 T cells is so uh, significant. And and so my question to you is, do you see the CS1 treatment to be more economical? Um, or No, I don't see it more economical. I think that doing something autologous using the patient's own immune system, genetically modifying it, and then infusing it back is incredibly expensive. Because anytime you take, I mean, just the, just to say it, right, taking somebody's immune cells out and genetically modifying them and, and putting them back, you know, you have to do that in an incredibly sterile and, and sophisticated environment, which you can, your, your prejudices and mine are probably that, oh gosh, that's going to be wicked expensive. Uh, I think it, it's still wicked expensive. Uh, any autologous CAR-T trial is going to be wicked expensive. What you and I all hope for, I think what we all hope for, is we all hope to 
be able to have somebody's uh, some CAR T cells that are not from the patient, but in fact, CAR T cells that are from somebody else, that are universal donors, that won't react, that won't cause graft-versus-host disease when they're infused into a patient, but are targeted towards CS1 or BCMA or CD19 or whatever target you're interested in. And I think an allogeneic CAR-T treatment uh, could be much more economical because if you have essentially, uh, you know, a lot of uh, doses of these genetically modified CAR-T cells available, but they aren't from the patient, they've just been sitting around from somebody else for a long time, and you have tons of them, that if we're able to do that, that could be both exceptionally effective and economical. And I think that's the world that I hope to hope to be living in. Uh, but it's a necessary step to start with patients' own cells uh, because immune reactivity is very complex and trying to elim- and trying to have essentially universal donors is not an easy thing to even conceive of uh but i, I think well, that one of the downsides is you know you, you know the uh, cost implication per treatment and be having it covered by your insurance company yeah i i don't see that as a um as a likely durable solution to having an autologous car t um because of the of the costs um but i do think that a Allogeneic CAR T uh, is probably is where everyone I think would like to go, and I do see that as economical, because well, well, when when we when I talk about you know <clears throat> economical, all they're saying is that it'll be on you know, with the CAR uh, nineteen or CD nineteen CAR T cells. They said sure. that it would be equitable to a transplant. Well, I've already had a couple of those, so. You know, <laughs> Um, you know, my, I guess the point being is that if it's a half a million dollars and I can have that instead of a transplant, and, you know, it's, 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 it's equal, you know. So from a patient's perspective, if I'm cured for $500,000 versus having a couple of transplants and not being cured, then obviously, you know, hey, I'm already exactly. the $3 million man. I, you know, Exactly, exactly. Cured. You know, the patient wants cure, you know. Yep. And it's, and it's kind of damn the cost. But you know, insurance companies are, wow, you know, wouldn't it be nice if he'd just go away? <laughs> well, I think that insurance companies want, you know, because you you become a lot less expensive when you're cured. Uh, True. Exactly. Or or we die. <laughs> <laughs> Getting pretty morbid here. <laughs> and that's not the goal. I do have a follow-up question to that too. So, in theory, if this C C one target is that target? CS one. CS one. CS one target. And you right now it's an individual therapy. So for each person, you have to take out their T cells and genetically engineer them and put them back. So that's very very expensive. But once they're back in your body, it's a one-time treatment. Is that correct? Like, 
that that yeah. immunity, that that immune response is going to stay in your body, and any time your myeloma cells, maybe in the future, might be acting up again, and if they have CS1 on their surface, that that treatment you got several years ago, in theory, should still be effective. Is that correct? That's the goal. That's the goal. So it should be a one-time therapy if it works, and any time your myeloma flares up, the immune system will get into response and knock it back down. That's the hope. The The problem, I think, is that the – I guess the concern that I have is that if it flares up, that means that it's percolating around quietly while those CAR T cells are infusing or while those CAR T cells are persisting. And if that's the case, then probably the only way it could flare up is if they are target negative. They don't have the CS1 target on them anymore. Um, That's my concern. And I think that's everyone's concern in the um, CAR-T trials. Is there a way that through a bone marrow biopsy you could look at someone's myeloma cells and see if they have that target on their cells ahead yes. of time? Yes, that's, and that's part of the, the BCMA CAR-T trial requires that as an eligibility criterion, and we'll probably, we'll likely have that on, on our trial as well. Okay, thanks. Absolutely. Oh. Jason, my last question um, doesn't isn't meant to be a trick question, but it's about just funding. In what, with the stages that in the stage that you're at right now, how would you use additional funding to get to your follow-on stages, and how much would you how much would you need, basically? Great question, and you know we estimate that you know with a you know each patient would cost you know, at least a hundred grand wants to treat them. Um, and that's probably a bare minimum. Um, and the, the problem is getting to that point, getting to a point where you're ready to enroll a patient, because right Mm -hmm. now we're at a spot where we're, we've chosen our, a lot of our final stuff. We're verifying one or two last things. And then we're going to start doing dry runs, essentially, making sure that we can force a lot of cells to express CS1 on their cell surface and try to ship some cells down and run it through. And whenever you go into one of those sterile facilities and do anything there, open the door, it costs a tremendous amount of money. So we're probably anywhere between two and 400 grand away from getting to a spot where a clinical trial uh, could begin. Okay. And with, I think that what we use the money for primarily is that testing. We call it a GMP facility, and it's essentially a sterile, scientifically specialized environment where you can manipulate somebody's cells in such a way that it's safe and then give them back to the patient. Uh, And it's got to be done in, um, uh, it's got to be done in this uh, 
specialized facility to be safe and effective. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Those were all the questions that I had. Cynthia or Gary, do you have more? Because we have, uh, I, want, I would like to also open it up to caller questions. Okay, I've I'm got another thanks. one. Yeah, it's the, uh, you know, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, you have the uh, CD19 target, and it also, uh, they said, wipes out all the B cells. But in in the, you know, in uh, in the analysis that I saw on the pen, uh, research, they said you don't need B cells. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, it seems like they're there, they got to be there for some purpose. But in, in, in any event, um, in the mouse model that you had, you know, was there anything uh, that it took out? You know, did, did it grow a third leg in the front or <laughs> seven years or. You know, now, was there was anything anything that you could see that the CS1 also wiped out that, you know, that the mouse look was clear of myeloma, but was, you know, walking around, right, or, or wiggling, yeah. wiggling and not moving much, <laughs> wiggling and not moving much, and you know, and and I think that uh, no third leg, third ear, nothing like that. <laughs> Nothing. So, so it didn't look like there was anything obvious, which is a good thing that the that the mouse seemed like he was you know, pretty much doing pretty good. You know, he wasn't wasn't flopping around or anything. Nope. Nope. So that's a that's a, that's a that's a great sign. Yep. Um, to me, what I've what, what you're telling me just sounds like some some fantastic work on your part, and a hundred thousand dollars is one fifth of what they're talking about at Penn. So, you know. Um, you know, I'm so excited about what you're doing, Dr. Hoffmeister. Well, we're excited, too, and certainly very hopeful to get to work on, on this area. Yeah, one other thing is that because of this um, seat, you know, because of CAR uh, is getting, a, you know, it seems like you can go on Google and there's 45 billion entries, you know, and as a result, you know, it seems like everybody is jumping on the bandwagon. Is there a a ton of competition with regard to myeloma um, and the myeloma research that 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 you see, or or is it, or or because we're not that big a, d- a disease that uh, you know you're kind of a lone stranger. No, I mean certainly not a lone stranger, right? Because the UPenn group and the NCI are already there in myeloma. I think Memorial Sloan Kettering has a. I mean, I'm sorry. Um, I th- Either Memorial Sloan Kettering or, or Boston has a trial that's going to enroll uh, myeloma patients as well, another CAR-T trial, and I'm sure that more will come up, uh, you know, quickly. Uh, I think that from my perspective, you know, this is a, a hot topic area. Uh, people are very excited about the chance of, of great responses, as we are, and there's going to be a lot of people looking at this for many cancers. Uh, so I, I think I just that, saw there's uh, like a couple of them that just got 150 million, 127 million. You know, yeah, work in many car. cases these companies are forming in, in hopes that this could be one of the next big areas of cancer treatment. Uh, we certainly are uh, excited and believe in that it is going to be. Uh, one of the next big areas, and, and that's why we're we're so interested in this research. Great, 
you're doing some great work. Well, before we open it up for caller questions, I would just like to mention that um, as a foundation ourselves, we will be reviewing these proposals and then selecting a number of proposals to fund. And the research is just really exciting. But I'd also like to mention that, that your research right now has an open fundraising campaign through the Moore Foundation at www.nmyloma.org. So if you would like to donate to this campaign immediately, um, because we will take a few months to get to where we are creating our campaigns, take a look and donate on their site. And we, as a foundation, believe that collaboration is really key, that it helps everybody, and that one organization or one individual can't do this alone. So we support the work being done by all organizations and right now their campaign is open and ready for our donations. Oh, thank okay. thank you so much. So I would like to um welcome you to if you have a question for Dr. Hoffmeister, you can call three four seven six three seven two six three one and press one on your keypad. And we have a caller at nine eight three six seven five seven. Go ahead with your question. Hi, Dr. Hoffmeister. This is Dana Holmes. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, Dr. Hoffmeister, I have a couple of questions. What criteria, other than being CS1 negative, would exclude a high-risk myeloma patient from being eligible to join this research trial? Well, you're, unfortunately, there's a lot of criteria. Uh, and the reason is, is because it's a first-in-man trial. Uh, and it's difficult for everyone to evaluate whether the treatment's safe and effective if there are a lot of organ systems already affected in the patient. Uh, so what we've proposed currently is the patient have moderately good kidneys, that the patient doesn't already have a ongoing infection, that the patient's heart is functioning well, that their liver's functioning well. And I know this may sound like, oh, well, I'm sure that'll be fine. But that's not always the case, especially in myeloma, where patients' kidneys are affected uh -huh. uh, in a, a large uh, proportion of the population of myeloma patients. So limiting them to patients who essentially have normal kidneys really aggravates me. Um, but it's a requirement to, to get the first state, to get your foot in the door, essentially, to start the process. Mm -hmm. um, and the, I think that that really takes up the majority of the exclusion criteria is, is patients who are otherwise sick uh, that where you worry that if you get some the T, CAR T cells in them and they start expanding drastically and the patient gets sick, that they won't be able to tolerate tolerate being sick for a little bit as we try to uh, decrease the uh, the cytokines that are flowing around in the patient. So I think that uh, that'll limit a lot of the patients. You know, if I can think of a number of my dial my myeloma patients who are on dialysis who curse this very uh, fact that in most clinical trials dialysis patients are excluded. Mm-hmm. That's certainly something we're trying to fix. Okay, thank uh, you. I, I'm a smoldering myeloma patient. Um, and I'd like to really understand how do we get the smoldering myeloma community interested and excited in your research proposal. I realize the Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative is focused on high-risk active myeloma research, but I also understand that if you can find an effective therapy leading to a cure in this subgroup, 
the standard and intermediate risk groups will eventually benefit as well. Can you see this therapy, if successful, and I know it's probably years away, someday moving into the smoldering myeloma population? Or do Absolutely. you need a greater tumor burden for this to potentially work? Is CS1 no. expressed on myeloma cells in this stage of the spectrum? Yes. And, you know, I, I certainly see this therapy uh, once... I mean, you said that it, so definitively. You didn't hesitate. <laughs> so that that's really neat. No, I mean... I mean, think of it. Think of it is that uh, MGUS, smoldering myeloma, myeloma are all part of a, a spectrum, mm-hmm. right? And you know, increased number of mutations, increased aggressiveness of the mutated plasma clone. I mean, that's what really characterizes the progression from MGUS to smoldering to active myeloma. So, wouldn't we all want to be able to? treat patients before they have any of the dreaded crab criteria that mm-hmm. you could eliminate and kill off the entire tumor clone. That's Absolutely. exactly where I think this research is headed. And Wonderful. Yeah, okay. it's going to take yeah, us a while That's exciting. That's very exciting for a smoldering patient to, to hear and understand because, you know, you hear high-risk myeloma and you think, oh, I'm not there yet. Why should I be bothered? But this is really critical to understand that, you know, what we do today is eventually going to trickle down to, to you know, the precursor states. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm, I absolutely think that's where we're headed. All righty. Well, thank you so much. If you need a, a patient down the road, call me. <laughs> thanks, Dana. Okay. Thanks so much, Dr. Heifmuth. Appreciate the call. Oh, thank Bye-bye. you so much. So we have, I know we're keeping you over, but we have two more questions, if you don't mind. 741-4487. Okay, go ahead with your question. Paul, thanks for um, the opportunity to speak with the doctor, uh, to the foundation, and uh, to the doctor. Um, I came in late, so I apologize. Uh, Maybe you touched on this. Um, Focus, uh, the focus of Daratumumad, which has been, as far as I understand, um, uh, shown good results, um, and it focuses on the CD38 uh, receptor. Um, is this something that you've considered, uh, and uh, is there any potential for this? And uh, I guess uh, that's it for now. Sure. Well, thank you for the question. Um, you know, we are very interested in a- all of the CD38 antibodies, and we know of three uh, and dertumumab is one of them. They seem to, dertumumab and the Sanofi CD38 antibody each show single agent activity, um, and we find them very exciting. We think that they're going to be FDA approved uh, much sooner than the CAR T cells will be FDA, FDA approved in myeloma, so we're excited for them as, a, as an option. Problem with uh, having CD38 CAR Ts is that it CD38 is expressed on a number of non-cancerous cells, and having these uh, C, having CD38 targeted CAR T cells could lead to a lot of problems uh, if a lot of normal cells are attacked. Uh, so okay. I think it could be done, but there are some significant hurdles to make it happen. And I know that uh, a number of groups, both in Europe and in the U.S are actively working on that problem. Okay, thank you. Just a quick follow-up. Would that be the same issue with, uh, I believe there's like a CD42 that 
Stanford has worked with um, a doctor out there, perhaps Weinstein, um, and it's shown some efficacy. Um, or it's early in its development, I believe, but uh, it's expressed likewise on a number of other cells. So I guess that's the same problem. It could be. I'm not familiar with CD42. I am familiar with CD44, uh, and and there is an antibody uh, from um, uh, at Moffitt uh, targeting uh, CD44, uh, and it's uh, and CAR T cells against CD44 uh, sixth variant is. Uh, Already being looked at as a CAR T as a CAR T target in myeloma, and that's published. Um, that looks interesting as well, uh, and we're going to get into some of the same problems with that CD44 variant targeting. Um, and I really can't speak to CD42, but CD44 variant targeting is expressed on a number of cells, so it'll have many of the same hurdles as CD38. Thank you very much for your time, and thanks to the Foundation. Okay, thank you so much. So we have another caller, 209-9890. Go ahead with your question. Yes, thank you very much, Jenny, uh, for your work, and Dr. as well. Uh, my question is a bit pragmatic. As a patient on in going into my fourth year, when you're assuming that your work results in human trials in a year, year and a half, uh, where what will the locations be, uh, or will it be a single location, and how much time do you think a patient would have to plan to be on site to participate in your trial? Right. So, you know, we we will likely try to uh, mimic some of the experience at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and so. Uh, it's likely to be a single site just here at Ohio State, uh, and because our GMP facility is a, is a wonderful uh, location at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and so many of our cells will be kind of ideally driven down to Cincinnati, genetically modified, expanded, and then driven back up to be infused into patients. Patients will be on campus a lot for that first four weeks, uh, and literally for the first two weeks, uh, it's uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the very least. Uh, so it's, it's quite, a, quite a bit uh, for those uh, patients in the first month is what is planned currently. All right, and then uh, follow-up uh, checkups and so on, would, uh, would we have to plan on being there for a period of months, or can we come in and out of the... Uh no, after that, it's relatively minimal. What we plan at the moment at the moment is uh, monthly for three months, for two months afterwards, and then uh, every uh, at six months follow up from there. And then the duration there depends a little bit on on further communication with the FDA. Great, thank you very much, and thanks again, Jenny. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, our last um, question that we have time for, 465-8689. Go ahead with your question. Yes, good morning. My name is Dr. Linda Hunnamer. I'm in California, and I just uh, 
um, a few weeks ago, was involved with the MMRF Walkathon with UCSF, and over the weekend I was involved with the IMF um, in a patient seminar, and I also see that you have a site which is um, <clears throat> in myeloma.org. My question is a funding issue. With all these different organizations raising funding, how are you all working together or do you work together to come up with a plan? Like how does a, a person uh, like myself who's a myeloma patient want to, you know, how do, how do you say, wow, where do I, you know, focus my um, funds and my work to uh, come up with a better resolution to myeloma? Well, that's it. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, Jenny. Go ahead. No, that's a great question. <laughs> Go ahead. You can answer, and then I'll answer from our perspective. So, you know, from, you know, clearly there there is a site to support this research alone at nmyeloma.org. Um, but beyond that, I think the the question when you uh, when you when you invest in research that you're interested in, I think it, you want to invest in things you believe in. Invest in things where you you really gets you gets you jazzed about it, and I think that uh, the IMF, the MMRF, the LLS, there's a lot of 501c3s around uh, that are funding excellent research. So I'm not I don't necessarily think you can you can lose, but it's really nice, especially to be able to have some sort of connection with the research that you're investing in and some and to make to know that the dollars that you're uh investing go to the research you're most excited about and in some ways for you maybe maybe that might be at UCSF because you're close and you'd be able to communicate well with that research team I don't know. I think for me and in, in my uh, my own in investments in, re in research, it's 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 what I get most excited about, and uh, that I that I want to put my resources towards. Thank you very much. Okay, and just to comment on that, we um, we coming into this with the IMF and MMRF having having been um, providing research dollars and patient education and support for many years. Um, we looked at this as how can we fill the gaps of what's not being done. And um, the IMF focuses quite quite heavily on patient education, and they have wonderful seminars, like you said, you just attended. And um, the MMRF has focused primarily on research. But I think the appeal for this approach for us and uh, the Moore Foundation in addition is is that we do want patients to be able to see exactly where their dollars are going and all of their dollars for our what the for the campaigns that we end up selecting, a hundred percent of the dollars that are raised will go towards that research. So it was something that had hadn't been done before, and so we were looking to fill the gaps. But in addition, we have had conversations with multiple foundations to see how we can join together and collaborate a little more because I think historically that hasn't really been done. Okay. All right, Dr. Hoffmeister, we've kept you long, but but for a good reason. So we would um, absolutely like thank to, you. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really, really appreciate it. We are very grateful for the work that you're doing um, to cure this disease, and um, wish you all the best. And we are just 
so thankful for your hard work. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a great experience. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to Myeloma Crowd Radio and the new MCRI series on high-risk myeloma. Patients can help support the discovery of a cure, and we are very excited for you to become involved. 